Children's Church. I think Rose and some others are back in the back there, so you kids head out there, and they'll take you downstairs for Children's Church. Let's pray together as they're leaving. Our Father, we are grateful for this time now to open your word, and we thank you that it is so practical. It speaks to each and every life. You know our situation, and yet your word is timeless, and it is able to be applied by your spirit to each of our hearts. So this morning we pray that as we talk about these key steps to a joyful life, that you'll help us each one to see how we can put into practice what you have told us so clearly. And we pray, Lord, that we will have the joy of the Lord, the joy that only you can give, joy that is beyond anything this world can ever provide. So you touch our hearts and draw us to yourself, and we pray that your will would be accomplished. Bless our children and those who are leading them, and give them a great time together as well. And we just open our hearts and minds to you now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, let's turn to Philippians 4. Philippians chapter 4. We've been going through Philippians verse by verse, and we come to this great passage with some very familiar verses, Philippians 4, verses 2 through 9. And I've, I believe you find here seven steps, you could call it, seven key things that will bring about a joyful life. And uh, Paul was writing from prison. So it's not that Everything has to be smooth and easy and perfect in your life for you to have joy. Joy is not dependent. The kind of joy God can give is not dependent on your circumstances. If it was, then Paul wouldn't have had any joy in his life. But he did. He was content and he had great joy. And the Lord led him to talk about that, to write these verses in verses 2 through 9. So follow with me in Philippians 4. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. Key steps to a joyful life. The first step, the, the, the most important thing of all, 
is to realize that the Lord himself is your joy. If you don't have the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, then there's no way you're going to have the kind of joy and peace that the Bible talks about. It is impossible. The world offers all kinds of answers to the question, how can I have a joyful life? It'll try to supply many things, but they all eventually end in disappointment or in despair, but not the Lord Jesus Christ. You can find joy in him, not in your circumstances, not in things, but in the Lord. Now, he starts off in these verses by imploring these two women that they would be of the same mind. The Philippian church, like any church, it had some difficulties, although this was a great church because human beings, we're all flawed, aren't we? Even as Christians, we're still not fully like Jesus, not in reality. We have the capacity to become like Christ in all things and in all ways, and eventually we will when we step into heaven. But we still live in a fallen world, and so sometimes we don't think and act the way that we should. And for some reason, these two women apparently were at loggerheads, and Paul is imploring them to look past their differences, whatever that was, and be of the same mind. The mind of Christ is the mind that Paul has talked about here and in other of his letters. And he urges Timothy, probably, the true companion that he mentions, because he started the letter by talking about, it said, Paul and Timothy. But he's urging them to help them, to come alongside them. And, and instead of stoking the fires of division, try to bring them together. And focus them on the right things. Help these women, he says, who labored with me in the gospel. And Clement also. And the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. These were all Christian people who had actually helped in sharing the gospel. And yet there had arisen something that was creating strife with them. And Paul is urging them to come together. And here I think he lays out how that is now possible because he talks about there's seven things you can pick out here that he mentions. The first is rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, he says, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in what or in who? In the Lord. That's where we find joy. That's where we find joy that remains if you get your joy in circumstances, but then your circumstances change, then your joy, that if it's sourced, if it arises from your circumstances, everything is, is good, no problems, uh, you've got plenty of money, you've got plenty of food, everything is going smoothly. If that's your source of joy, then you'll have a sense of joy as long as that's the case. But what life on this earth is 100% like that? Eventually, all of us come to the end of life, don't we? Our circumstances eventually become difficult circumstances. Then what? Is there any joy left? If you get your joy from hobbies or, or from uh, activities, things you can be a part of, what happens when those run out? What happens when you can't do those things anymore? 
does that mean you no longer have joy? If you get joy from your business and your business goes bad, then is there going to be any joy in your life? What about friends? If your joy is all sourced in the number of friends you have or the friends you particularly love and put your trust in, what happens if one of those friends fails you? We're all people who fail sometimes. We fall short. We hurt people we love sometimes. Does that mean joy has to end? If you get your joy from your health and your health then becomes broken, and it will for all of us someday, as we grow older, as we come to the end of life, then is joy gone? Is there no joy? Here was Paul in prison. He literally at any moment could have had his head cut off. And we know from tradition, uh, eventually he was beheaded for his faith. And here he is writing about joy. Rejoice, he says. Rejoice in the Lord. If your joy is in the Lord, then whether you're in prison or in a hospital or whether everything is going smoothly, you have a constant joy in your mind and heart that is not predicated on the things of this world. Malachi 3.6 says, I am the Lord, I change not. All those other things we described, they change. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have some enjoyment from things in this world, but see them as blessings from God. The friends you have, the family you have, the hobbies that you're able to take part in, assuming they're, they're wholesome kinds of hobbies, the things that you can enjoy in this life, they're all blessings from God, but they're not the source of joy. God is the source of, of your joy. And anything you have from this world is only an additional blessing that God has given you. Psalm 1611, Thou wilt show me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. Where is joy? It's in the Lord himself. And that's how, as a Christian, you can go through life with stability. You can have a constant sense of peace and satisfaction and fulfillment, joy in your life because Jesus Christ never changes. And so the joy he gives you is something that remains no matter what you face in life. Now, to have all of that, you have to have Jesus, don't you? You have to have received him into your life. And so that's the, that's the key step. Christ in you is what enables you to have the kind of joy that the Bible talks about. Peace that passes all understanding. Recognize, secondly, the Lord is near. Recognize that the Lord is near. He says something here in verse 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Let your gentleness, let your graciousness be known to all men. In other words, live your life in a way that brings blessing to other people. Show people goodness and graciousness and kindness in your life. And then he says, the Lord is at hand. Now, many times commentators take the Lord is at hand and they think this is a reference to the return of Christ. The Lord could return at any moment. His return is at hand. 
Of course, I think Paul did feel that way. We have other statements of Paul that he felt like the, the return of Christ was imminent and every Christian should always live with an expectation that the Lord could return at any moment because he can. But I'm not sure that's particularly what Paul meant here because it's on the heels of him saying, let your graciousness, let your goodness be shown to all men. The Lord is at hand. I think he's saying, remember, the Lord is near. The Lord is with you. Every moment of every day, you're never out of his sight. Didn't Jesus say, I will never leave you nor forsake you? And so your joy can be rooted in the reality that the Lord is with you. The Lord is near. You're not walking through this life alone by yourself. You have the Lord himself with you. He's near. He's not far away. Sometimes we feel like he's far away because of what we're facing in life. But he's very near. He's closer to you than you can even imagine. And it's not based on your feelings at a given point in time. Just because you don't feel like the Lord is there doesn't mean he's not there. In fact, perhaps he's even closer then than at any other time. Because he sticks closer to you than a brother. He loves you with an everlasting love. The Lord is at hand. He is with you. He's right here with us. He's in this very room right now. And so the Lord is near. One writer has said, the Lord Jesus Christ did not come to get you out of trouble. He came to get in trouble with you. He came to get in trouble with you. Now, not in trouble in the sense that he came to do bad things. Not that kind of trouble. But this world has plenty of trouble. And the Lord Jesus Christ, he stepped out of a perfect heaven. Out of the place where there is no sin. And he stepped into a sinful world. He came to get in this world of trouble with us. He became one of us, yet without sin. So that he could become the great sacrifice for the sin of all people. And so Jesus Christ, he's not, he's not out there somewhere just watching from a distance as we struggle through this life. He is at hand. He is with us. And he is here to help us as we journey through this life. That can bring great joy just to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is near. No matter where you are or what you face, he has not forgotten about you. He has not forsaken you. And then a third step, refuse to give in to worry. I'm the last person that should be preaching about this. Because worry is something I have always struggled with. And maybe, it, maybe you do too. And so I'm confessing that to you. So I'm not lecturing you. I'm letting the scripture talk to me, even as I hope it speaks to you. Be anxious for nothing, Paul said. Be anxious for nothing. Some one translation, I think the King James says, be careful for nothing. Now this word careful or anxious literally means to be pulled apart in the Greek. It means to be divided, to be pulled apart. If you can imagine a person being pulled in different directions you know they used to literally do that to people as a punishment they would literally pull people apart wouldn't they 
I mean, they would, they would strap them down and, and have uh, horses pull them in different directions, just pull them apart. That's the word in the Greek that is being used here. Worry pulls us uh, in different directions. It pulls us apart. We have fear. We have dread. We may have guilt. There are all kinds of emotions that, that factor into worry. And it pulls us apart. We're divided. We're being pulled into pieces. And sometimes... We want to turn one way or we turn another way. We're not sure what to do. We're overwhelmed with something that we are facing or we're concerned, we're worried about in life. Now, our English word worry means to strangle. I couldn't resist putting that on your note sheet. This is from a uh, website that gives you the etymology of words, and I think I put the citation down there. But our English word worry, this is... This is some of the meanings from, from over the centuries. Middle English, the word worrying, around 1300. The word meant to slay, to kill, or injure by biting and shaking the throat as a dog or a wolf does. From Old English, wirgen means to strangle. From Proto-Germanic, virgin, source also of Middle Dutch, Worgen, Dutch Worgen, Old High German Vergen, German Vergen, to strangle. And the Old Norse word Virgil, meaning rope. Now, what do you take from that? Well, have you ever gotten some terrible news? Have you ever heard something that made you worry? And suddenly, you got a big knot right here in your throat? You may have felt like there was pressure there, literally. You may not hardly be able to swallow. You may have begun to have trouble breathing because something that you heard or saw has so concerned you, suddenly you're having trouble even processing it. Well, I think it's, that's where the, the word worry has come down from these meanings of to strangle a rope a noose around your neck. Sometimes you may feel that way when something you're facing is so big and so overwhelming, so difficult. Whether you're being divided, pulled to pieces, as the Greek word means, or our English word meaning you're being strangled, neither one of those things are very good, are they? To be pulled apart or to be strangled are both pretty, pretty bad things. Jesus, that's why he warned us not to worry. Over in the Gospel of Matthew, we have a a large section in which Jesus tells us not to worry. And he basically says, don't worry because it won't do any good. Don't worry because you don't need to, because God knows what you need. You're not out of his care. You're not out of his sight. If he takes care of the flowers of the field, don't you think he's going to take care of you? He will provide what we need. And so Paul is saying, refuse to give in to worry, to let worry strangle you and dominate you and keep you from being the person that God wants you to be, to take your joy away. Don't let worry do that. Be anxious for nothing. And then he gives us an alternative. 
a very practical alternative to worry. What does he say? Pray. Instead of worrying, pray. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. There it is. So if uh, you say, well, it's easy for you to say don't worry, what am I supposed to do? You're supposed to pray. It's right here. It's in plain black and white. God has told us what to do. Now, the initial emotion when we hear something or see something or experience something, the initial feeling of worry, it's almost impossible to, to totally avoid. But we don't have to camp out there. We don't have to stay there with that noose around our neck. Instead, we can take everything to God, go directly to Him. You know, Hebrews 4, 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us come boldly. The word boldly there means without reserve not overlooking anything, not leaving anything out. We can bring everything to God. We can go directly to the throne of grace where Jesus Christ is, and we can lay our, we can lay our whole life out before Him. He knows already. But when we lay it out to Him, it's not that we're changing God, but God changes us in that process. We, we lay it down. We give it to Him. Just like Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's, he's telling us to come to him. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Take it to the Lord and leave it there. Isn't that a song we sing, an old hymn? Take your burdens to the Lord and leave them there. It doesn't matter how big your problem is, you can carry it to God. It also doesn't matter how small you think your problem is. Take it directly to the Lord. It's like good parents. You want to hear all about the lives of your children. There's not anything that's too small. You want to know what's going on in their life because you love them, because you're concerned about them. We have a Heavenly Father who wants to hear all about our life. He knows us. He loves us. And he knows that in the telling, in the bringing to him, the burden is laid down and we are lifted from worry to joy. And he can help us and guide us as we depend upon him. G. Campbell Morgan said, Can you think of anything that's big to God? Not too big. Can you think of anything that's big to God? No, there really isn't anything. So if you're sometimes worried that, well, I can't take these small things to God, everything is a small thing to God because he's a big God. The things that we think are gigantic and enormous and insurmountable, they're not to God because he's almighty God. And so we can bring everything to him and he has the power, he has the answers to help us no matter what we face. 
And then a fifth thing Paul mentions here, cultivate a thankful spirit. Cultivate a thankful spirit. Verse 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's after he tells us to bring everything to the Lord. And then there's a little statement in the middle of that sentence in verse 6. With thanksgiving, bring all of your concerns to the Lord with thanksgiving. We are to have a thankful spirit. As God's people, we are to give thanks in everything. That's what we're told in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In everything, in everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It is the will of God for you to give thanks in everything. Now that means even when we don't understand, when we don't have answers... We give thanks to God. And it may be simply you say, God, I don't know what's going on, but I give thanks to you for who you are and for what you can do with this. Whatever you want, I submit to you. Give thanks to him in everything. In some sense, this is the highest expression of faith that you as a Christian, you give thanks to God in every situation, good and bad, known and unknown, difficult and joyous. Whatever you face, you give thanks to Him. Romans 8, 28. That's how you give thanks to God. For all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to His purpose. doesn't say all things are good, but all things work together for good. God takes all circumstances and accomplishes His purpose and His will. That's why you can give thanks to God in everything. And when you do, you are putting your trust in Him. And you are saying, God, I do trust you. I trust you in this, no matter what the outcome. And then He tells us to set our minds on positive things. If you look in verse Eight, you have the great list, the great statement. Paul says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. If you're going to have joy in your life, your mind has to be in the right place. If your mind is always on the negative, always instead of meditating on what is good and what is wholesome and what is right, what is true, what is lovely, what is of good report, if it's always the opposite, you're going to be a miserable human being. I will be a miserable human being. Because so as a man thinketh, so he is. So whatever you're feeding on, whatever you're putting into your mind, whatever you're dwelling on is going to largely determine what kind of person you are, how you feel, what you think. Set your mind on the things above, on the things of God. And here's the list. This describes the character of God. This list that Paul gives us here. Noble, just, pure, lovely, 
good report, praiseworthy. This is describing God himself. So set your mind on the things of God. And where's the best place to find these kind of things? Right here. The Bible. That's why it's so important to read the Bible. To let the Bible speak to you. Because here's where you will find the kind of things that Paul just describes in that verse right there. Set your mind on the things that are positive. And it will have an impact on how you feel in life. So many people are miserable, but they never open the, the Bible. They never let God speak to them, and they wonder why they're so miserable. Well, it's not going to change until you're ready to let God work in your mind and in your life. There's a little proverb, you sow a thought and you reap a deed. You sow a deed and you reap a habit. You sow a habit and you reap a character. And you sow a character and you reap a destiny. It all starts with a thought. What are you thinking about? What are you letting fill your mind? That will largely determine what you're going to end up being. With God's word, with his power, he can help you and I to have joy. Because he will pour into us that which leads us to joy. The positive things, the things of God, the character of God. Let your mind dwell, meditate, soak on those things. And then a final thing that Paul says, not unimportant. Number nine. Uh, verse 9, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. Now, the God of peace harkens back to verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. God wants your heart and your mind to be guarded to set, a, to set a, a fence around to keep you safe. And this happens when we do what God tells us to do. So get busy. You and I, get busy doing what God says to do. Don't just think about it or talk about it. Do what God says to do here. That's the last step, to practice, to put into practice everything that he has said. James 1.22 says, be doers of the word, not hearers only. And so if you want your life to change, if you want to go from being discouraged to having joy, do what God says to do. You can think from now to doomsday about what you wish your life was like, but unless you begin to do what God says to do, it's not going to happen. You're not going to have joy. But you can have joy if you do what God tells you to do. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-three says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And so... Your heart needs to be filled with the things that God has talked about here. And then you need to be putting those things into practice. I don't know who said it. I tried to find who said it. Actually, a lot of people have said it over the years. There's a little saying, impression without expression leads to depression. 
impression without expression leads to depression. And so just having an impression of something, hearing something, knowing something, but not expressing it will actually not only not make your life better, it'll make it worse because now you know what the truth is. Now you know what you could be doing, what you should be doing that would help your life. And then if you don't do it, it even just compounds the problem. And so it's so important now that you have seen what God says you and I are to do that will result in rejoicing, the joy of the Lord, the peace of God. We need to do it. And if we don't, we're going to be even more miserable. So don't let that happen in your life. Impression without expression leads to depression. But the opposite is also true. When you begin to do what God says, then it has a great effect. It changes who you are. John 13, 7, Jesus said, If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. How could he be more explicit? If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. So let's begin to put into practice what God says here and throughout his words. And we will experience the great promise here. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Key steps to a joyful life. This is where God wants us to be. In Him. Our joy is in Him. Let's follow Him. Let's listen to Him. Let's do what He's told us to do. Would you pray with me? We thank you, Lord, for these wonderful verses there's so many things here that we could spend much more time on. But Lord, help us to see from these seven verses that you want so much good for us. Help us to begin to put into practice what you've told us here. And then look to you and trust you to see how you work in our lives. Lord, if there's someone here today who is so down and discouraged, Help them to see that it doesn't have to stay that way. You, you want better for them. And you will be their joy. So Lord, help us to just open our hearts to you. And not only understand what you say here, but then be willing to, to start doing what you've told us to do. We love you. We thank you for your love for us. If there's someone here who needs to make a commitment to you, publicly or privately, we ask you to lead us now that we might be obedient in however you would lead. And we trust you to be at work. Help us now to be obedient. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.